to see all you guys. Glad you made it, and I'm excited to start this new series with you. And uh, to to help understand what we're talking about, I I need to confess, like I, I I'm a sucker for good marketing. Usually, like if I see a commercial. Um, multiple times on TV for Zaxby's, I will end up going to Zaxby's, even though Chick-fil-A, we, we know that I have a special, it's, I mean, it's God's chicken, but if the Zaxby's commercial works on me, right? And that had, that's, there's a testimony to that in different areas of my life, but there's one marketing strategy that has never worked on me because it just doesn't make sense. And that is the, the big sale that says, the more you spend, the more you, that makes zero sense to me. Like, I just don't believe that at all. And so when I see that, the more you spend, the more you save, I go, you're trying to trick me. And I don't trust you anymore. And therefore I'm not, whatever you're selling, I'm not buying it. Because save and spend are opposites. And so you can't put those two things together and tell me this is a true statement. That's what we would call paradox. A paradox is two statements that both claim to be true, but when you, when you try to put them together, they don't, they don't fit. They don't work together, right? It's, uh, it's when somebody tells you, you know, down deep, you're actually a really shallow person. Like, okay, that, that doesn't actually make sense. It's, uh, it's like if you, if you know somebody that really likes logic problems and stuff and you wanna give them uh, something to work on, you can come buy this from me later. Uh, this is a card, or you can make your own, obviously, because this is really simple. Uh, and it says on one side, it says, the sentence on the other side of this card is false. And you flip it over and it says, the sentence on the other side of this card is true. Just hand this to somebody who likes logic problems and just watch them work for a while, okay? It's a paradox. It's truth in contradiction. And I think that we struggle with this mostly in, in our part of the world. We, so in case you don't know, there, there, there's different ways of seeing the world and it's, you can divide it sort of east and west. And, and Western thought comes from like, Plato and Aristotle really started this, but it really took off during the enlightenment. And we got to a place where now Western people, for the most part, we're pretty big fans of logic and reason and rationality. And so in Western thought, you, these two ideas, you know, the more you spend, the more you save, they don't work. You can't take two opposing ideas. You, your job when you hear those is, all right, we have to decide which one of these we're throwing out because they can't both be right. That's Western thought. But in Eastern thought, Eastern thought is a lot more open to holding on to two that seemingly contradictory or opposing items and letting them both exist in our brains for a little while while we examine them. Eastern thought's much better at this. And the Bible was written to and by people who grew up, grew up in Eastern thought. And so as we read scripture sometimes and as we exercise our faith, we come across paradoxes. We come across ideas that seem to be in contradiction with each other but the Bible writers don't seem like they're in a real hurry to resolve some of these things. And it frustrates us Western thinkers because we think like, okay, was God, was God, was Jesus fully God or was he fully man? And, and when, you, when you read through scripture, and you read, it's, like, it's like the Bible writers aren't even trying to answer that question, right? And we're gonna talk about that next week. The week after that, Matthew's gonna talk to us about the way that strength and weakness work in scripture. And they don't seem to work the way that they work in our world today, the way that, that strength and weakness work in the kingdom of God. We're gonna talk about uh, faith and works. Are you saved by faith or are you saved by works? But it seems like the scripture writers aren't really trying to resolve that like we would like them to resolve that. We're gonna talk about the mercy and the wrath of God. You think mercy and wrath, those two things shouldn't go together. 
Somebody is either merciful or they're wrathful. They, they can't be both. But the scripture writers don't really try to resolve that the way we would want them to. They don't try to say, well, this one's true and that one's false. So today we're going to talk about belief and doubt. And how in, in our minds, belief is, is one thing and doubt is the opposite of belief. And so you can't put these two things together in the life of, of a believer. In fact, I, I, I asked a question, I posted this on Facebook, great way to get quick, quick survey feedback. Can belief and doubt coexist in the life of a Jesus follower? And 100% of the answers were positive. Yes, belief and doubt can coexist in the life of a Jesus follower. Intellectually, we're okay with that. But when it actually hits us in real life, when we as Jesus followers or somebody that we love and care about as a Jesus follower begins to enter a season of doubt, we freak out because these things don't seem to go together. Like if you're doubting, then you must not believe. And if you believe, you'll never doubt, right? So how do we, how do we handle this thing that, that the Bible doesn't seem to want to put in an either or category? It doesn't want to seem to solve this for us in a way that we say, this one's true and that one's false. How do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we handle this on a personal level? So we're gonna look at the story of Thomas from John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to, to, to jump in and, and uh, be prepared to look at that with us. But this, this um, subject is really launched by a story that we find in Mark 9. In Mark 9, uh, Jesus comes down from a mountain. He's been up there with three of his disciples. And, and while he was up there at the bottom of the mountain, there were... The other disciples were there, and this man had brought his son who was suffering from an illness. He, was, he was, uh, had a demon possession uh, that was making his life very difficult and it was causing health problems for him. And, and he brought his son to the disciples and said, hey, can you, can you heal my son? They, they were like, sure. So they tried and they failed. And when Jesus gets down to the bottom of the mountain, uh, everybody's kind of in turmoil. The disciples are like, what's going on? We thought we had the power to heal, but we, we, it's not working. And the father's like, hey, I thought these guys could help me out, but it's not working. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, hey, it, anything is possible if you believe. And then the man says something that should really catch our attention. He says, I believe. To which we go, great, good for you. He does believe. Jesus, this is gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be fine. He believes. But right after that, he says, but help my unbelief where we go, well, which is it? Do you, do you believe or do you unbelieve? I don't know if unbelief, I'm using that correctly, but just track with me. Do you believe or do you not? There's a contradiction in this one sentence. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, I think the reason why that resonates with us is because we, we, we feel the same way sometimes. I do believe, but man, there are some things that I struggle with. So how, how do we wrestle through that? So we're gonna look at the life of Thomas uh, here in just a moment. I, I wanna help us understand these concepts of believe and doubt and why they don't seem to work together. So we're just gonna use a couple of basic working definitions for these two terms. Believe is when you trust something, you, you accept something as truth based on its trustworthiness. You accept something as truth based on its trustworthiness. So if I were to tell you that inside this box is a Lego rocket, would you believe me? Most of you that have been here and if you've met me and you know me that Lego is sort of a family value for us and that I sometimes bring stuff on stage like that, you're kind of going, yeah, that's plausible, right? Th that matches with what we know of Adam and what's possible and it seems like it would fit in that space and all of this makes sense so you probably, you probably believe me because there's, there's an element of reliability and trustworthiness to me but also to what I'm saying seems to make sense, right? That's... That's belief. And there's a lot that, that we believe just because of the person who says it to us 
or because it just seems really plausible and it, and it just seems to make sense. And doubt is when we reject something as truth based on an rocket that can go to Mars. So if I were to tell you that inside this is an actual SpaceX rocket that can go to Mars inside this box, would you believe me or doubt me? Would that even fit? And how would he get his hands on that? And don't those cost a lot of money? And why would it be here and not in you know, Elon Musk's backyard? Like a, what, there's a lot of reasons why we would say, no, I, I doubt experience that. And so sometimes things come across our world experience that make us go, you know what? I don't, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't fit with the way I view the world. And the challenge is when, when something happens, we have an experience or we get new information that causes us to doubt something that we've always believed. And this, this is going to bring us to a, a crisis moment in our faith. So we're going to see what this looks like in the life of Thomas and then maybe what it looks like in, in our lives or the lives of people that we love and care about. So let's read some from um, John chapter 20. Uh, we're going to start in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He appeared to the other disciples uh, to just kind of show them that he was alive and Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is doubting this report that Jesus has risen from the dead because it doesn't match with what he knows about the world. In Thomas's world, when people die, they stay dead. And you go, well, but didn't Thomas see Jesus raise people from the dead? Yeah, he did. Jesus raised people from the dead. But when Jesus dies, who, who heals the healer? Who raises the razor? Again, I'm probably not using these words grammatically correctly, but what, like if, if the one who can raise people from the dead dies, who's, who's, who's around to raise him from the dead? And, and, and for Thomas, this, this does not make sense. It doesn't fit with the way the world works. It doesn't fit with what he saw with his own eyes as Jesus was crucified right before him. And so he says, I'm out on this. And, he, and what, he, what he does is he creates, and this is something that we do all the time, and I think you need to look for this in your own life. He decides that he will believe, he's open to believing, but on his terms. I'm gonna set the terms under which I will accept this as truth. And the terms are, I have to touch those nail marks in his hands and feet. I have to put my hand on the wound in his side that we saw the soldier stab him in the side. I've gotta put my hand on that wound. These are my terms. And if, and if he will meet my terms, then I will believe. Does that sound familiar? I think we do that all the time. What does it sound like when I say it out loud like that? It sounds a little self-righteous, doesn't it? It sounds a little like, oh, you, you're the one who knows so much that you get to set the terms over whether something is true or false. But we do it all the time. It doesn't feel self-righteous when we do it. Sometimes it feels smart. You're like, well, no, you've got you've to meet my terms if I'm going to accept what you're saying is true. And so this is what Thomas does. He, he sets his own terms. He doubts this truth. And, and it's a foundational truth, friends. We got to understand, Thomas is not you know, in an argument with the disciples over whether you know, Jesus' eyes were brown or hazel. It's, this is a foundational truth. Did he rise from the dead or not? And the answer to that question will determine whether Christianity takes off and becomes a thing or fizzles and dies here in the next couple of days. So here's, here's what happens next. Let's continue in verse 26. Eight days later, 
His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So uh, the first line that we read here, I think is significant. Eight days later, eight days later. So Thomas has rejected this truth claim that Jesus rose from the dead. All the other disciples are on board with this. And Thomas says, I'm not on board with this. And they don't kick him out. I think there's a couple significant things that don't happen here that, are, that we need to pay attention to. First of all, the disciples don't kick him out. When he says, I'm not sure I buy that Jesus actually rose from the dead, they don't kick him out and say, well, if you're not gonna be on board with that, you can't be a part of what we're doing, so see ya. You need to move on down the road and we'll find somebody else who believes what we're selling. They give him some space. They keep him in the family and they give him some space to doubt. The other thing that doesn't happen that I think is significant is Jesus doesn't show up the next day for Thomas. The disciples tell him, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him. Thomas says, nope, unless I can touch him for myself, I'll never believe. And Jesus, it, this what happens next implies Jesus knows all of this that happens. He knows the words that Thomas uses and he doesn't show up the next day or the day after that or the day after that or the day after that knowing that he can set the record straight at any moment. He waits. Why does Jesus wait eight days and let Thomas wrestle with this challenge, this significant truth claim that he has decided not to believe and Jesus lets him sit in this for a long time. I mean, eight days is a long time when you're talking about, do you believe that your friend rose from the dead or not? Uh, there's a, a technique for farming uh, when it, uh, for grapes, uh, wine grapes in the Northeast or Northwest, in the Pacific Northwest. There's a technique called dry farming uh, where there's uh, farmers who have decided that the best thing to do is to not artificially irrigate our crops. We're not gonna irrigate them. We're just gonna let whatever rain falls, that's what they get and that's it and no more, right? And this is a controversial subject, by the way. You can look up dry farming and, and stuff and it's, it's really interesting to, to read about. But the reason why the, the dry farming people are so passionate about it is because of what they say happens during seasons of drought. During seasons, like if, if you're gonna trust nature to water, there's gonna be periods where uh, there's not enough rain. And what happens to the plants when there's not enough rain? What the dry farmers say happens is uh, these roots that were sitting kind of on the surface waiting for the rain to come or the water to come, they actually start moving down deep. The plant starts putting their, its roots down deeper into the soil looking for moisture. And what you end up with, with a plant that has to go through this process of a period without rain is a stronger plant. And, and one that's more deeply rooted in the soil. And so for, for, for wine people, it, it, they, they say it, it tastes more like the ground that it came from, but it's also a stronger and hardier plant. I wonder if that's not the same thing that, that Jesus is doing for Thomas here. He's giving him some space in a season of drought where he, the answer that he's looking for is not right in front of him. So he's got to wrestle he's got to start asking some serious questions about what does he actually believe? I'm sure that Thomas went through this over this period of eight days. What do I really believe about Jesus? 
my friends are all telling me that he's alive, but I don't think that's possible. What do I really believe about who he is and what he's done? And during this eight days, I believe Thomas's roots go deep so that when Jesus does show up and says, here I am, you set the terms. Your terms, Thomas, was you have to touch the nail marks in my hands and you have to touch the wound in my side. So here I am, do your thing. I'm gonna meet you on your terms. And all indications are Thomas never touched him because when he sees him face to face, he's gone through this season of wrestling with what he really believes. And he knows in that moment exactly what he believes and why. You are my Lord and my God. That's his response. I believe that it was this season of doubt that led to Thomas coming to a place of really deep and strong faith on the other side where he, he no longer has to have it on his terms. He does not have to touch Jesus' nail marks or put his hand in the side. He believes because of this season of wrestling that he went through and a season of doubt. And I think this process that Thomas went through is important for us. In fact, there, there's a whole process that's sort of been identified that's been, uh, it's been around forever, but it's probably been talked about more in Christian circles over the last 20 years. And it's the process of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Uh, I, I got some information I'm about to share with you from a book by A.J. Swoboda called uh, After Doubt, um, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. So if you're interested in more on that subject, uh, jot that down, A.J. Swoboda. Uh, after doubt, how to question your faith without losing it. And, and here's kind of how this gets laid out. We're gonna, we're gonna create an imaginary uh, person named Steve. And uh, Steve was uh, handed a set of beliefs as a child. Um, his family were church people and took him to church every Sunday, Sunday school and worship with his family. Uh, they had a Bible in their home. They prayed on occasion. He was handed a set of beliefs, much like the set of beliefs I was handed and probably many of you were handed. And uh, one of the things that, that Steve was, was taught regularly was or heard regularly in his church was the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And what Steve develops in his heart is this very black and white and sort of rigid approach to his faith that says, the Bible believes it, that settles it. I, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And there, there's really no, there's no room for interpretation on what scripture actually says. It's whatever you're told that it says and, and, and that's it. And it's very rigid and black and white. And when it comes to teaching children, you know, there's some of that that's, that's, that's kind of necessary, but this is, the, this is the faith that Steve grows up with. And it looks kind of like this. Guys, it was a Lego rocket. Uh, so you know you can trust me now. And, and it's this, this well-constructed set of beliefs that, that Steve's been handled, handed. But when Steve becomes a teenager, 16, 17, 18, and he moves into this questioning phase of life that all teenagers go through, you, you know it because you did it. And if you've got teenagers, which I do right now, it's, it's a real thing that they start questioning the things that they've been taught and, and asking questions because they're having experiences in life that may not match up ex with exactly what they've been taught. And what we begin to realize is that Steve was handed a set of beliefs by an imperfect community. That his Sunday school teacher wasn't perfect and his preacher wasn't perfect. And his parents in the way that they communicated these beliefs were not perfect. And so there are some things in this set of beliefs that he was handed that may not be accurate, that may not be true. 
And he moves into this phase uh, of what, what would be called now deconstruction. Deconstruction is a really scary word because deconstruction is a really scary process. Because in the deconstruction phase, Steve begins to take apart some of the faith that he was handed. And he takes this belief uh, statement and he, and he looks at it and he evaluates it and he decides, do I really believe this or not? And then maybe he'll take some more pieces off of his belief system, the set that he was handed. And he'll take these out and he'll look at them and he'll say, all right, now my experience says one thing, but this set of beliefs I was handed as a child says something else. And, and I'm not sure what I believe. And he enters this season of doubt. And this season is terrifying, not only for Steve, because what if this whole thing comes crashing down? But it's also terrifying for the people that handed him the belief system to begin with, isn't it? His parents and his pastor and his Sunday school teacher and his grandparents. And they're watching Steve begin to break down this set of beliefs. And it's terrifying because the fear is once he starts taking it down, it, he'll never put it back together. And it's, he's just gonna destroy the whole thing and he'll end up at the end with no faith. That's the fear. But if Steve has people in his life who are farther down the road, who will give him some space, give him Thomas's eight days, or for most of us, it's a couple years that we need the first time we go through this process. We'll give him some space to wrestle with some things. And if Steve will continue to return to the word of God and hold up every single one of these beliefs that he takes apart and says, all right, I, my experience makes me doubt this. What does God's word actually say? I went through this when I was 16. It took me about four years to go through this process because I was handed a belief system, a set of beliefs that told me that bad things don't happen to good people. And then I watched my family completely fall apart when my parents were divorced. And I took this belief that I was handed, bad things don't happen to good people. And I said, how can this be? Because my parents are good people. And I... I think most of us, we kind of think of ourselves as good people. I'm a pretty good person. You know, all the bad sins, I've never done any of those. The murder, never killed anybody. And like, how can it be that this awful thing has happened to these good people? Maybe, maybe, maybe God isn't good after all. And I, I took this and for four years, I wrestled with this. And I kept coming back to scripture. And I kept comparing what I had been taught, what, what I had been handed to what scripture actually says. And what I found out is scripture does not support the idea that bad things don't happen to good people. That's not from the Bible. And so I was able to take that, that belief and set it aside and say, I don't need that anymore. That, that, that was a, a false version of God. It wasn't ever true. So I can take that out and leave it. And Steve goes through the same process. And he, he begins to take some, some things about his faith and look at them and examine them and hold them up to scripture and talk about them with people who, have, or who are farther down the road and they've given Steve some space to wrestle. What happens to Steve if his, his community of people says, you cannot question these things? These are the things you were handed. You cannot question these. You can't take this apart. You can't look at this. What happens? There's an incompatibility with the experiences that he's having and some of the beliefs that he's handed and he walks away. But if he's given some space, if he holds up every, everything that he wants to examine to 
the word of God and there are people in his life who will guide him through this process, who will walk with him. I think it's so fascinating that the disciples, when Thomas is going through his deconstruction period, which I think is exactly what happened for those eight days, that the disciples didn't seem like they were constantly debating with him and trying to change his mind and like, man, you, you, you're just wrong and you've got to get on our side about this. And, and like, let me, let's tell you all the reasons why what you believe is stupid. I don't think they did that. If, if they had, I think Thomas would have just walked away because who wants to listen to that all the time? But they gave him some space and he wrestled with it and they walked with him through it. And he came out on the other side with this. He had this belief that dead people don't come back to life. That's just kind of the part of the world that he grew up in. And he was able to say, you know what? That actually doesn't fit with, with what I believe now about Jesus. And he was able to set that aside and say, I don't, I don't need that anymore. And because he had this space and because he had people in his life, Thomas was able to put some things back together. He took some things out and Steve is doing the same thing. Steve's taking some things out. You know, there's, there's this thing that Steve was taught that God, God hates the people that I hate, Right? He began to hold that up to scripture and he found out that's not actually true. So I'm gonna set that aside. And, and he, he took out this, this view of God that, that God loves me or, or is, despises me based on my behavior on a daily basis. Like if I'm, if I'm bad today, God turns his back on me and he's not with me and for me and he doesn't care about me. But if I'm good today, then he'll turn around and he'll be with me and for me and good. That's, that's a belief system he was taught. He holds that up to the word of God and he talks about it with people who are farther down the road and he finds out that's not actually true and he sets it aside. And slowly he rebuilds his faith and he puts it back together based on what's actually true. And the faith, this is the reconstruction period. And the faith that he ends up with at the end is better because it's stronger. He's removed some weak parts of it that never should have been there to begin with. And it's his. It's not just something he was handed. It's something that he has been given some time to study and reflect and reconstruct on his own. And it's stronger now. And the next time a doubt comes along, Steve is, is prepared. He knows exactly what to do. You can take some of those pieces out. You can hold them up to the scripture. And maybe some of those pieces you take out and you, you ask these questions like, okay, does, is, is the moral law that God laid out in scripture, is it, does it still apply today? And he takes it out and holds it up and he finds out, you know what? It actually does. God's moral law doesn't change. And whatever he said was right and wrong then is still right and wrong today. And he puts that back in. But he knows the process now. You can take these things out. You can hold them up. And it doesn't mean the whole thing's gonna come crashing down. And I think the fact that, that Thomas was allowed to do that and we, uh, means we have to give people some space to do that. I was talking about this with my friend Brett this week and Brett said, you know what's funny? We have a nickname for Thomas. You guys know the nickname for Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? If you grew up in church, you've been around, that's how you think of Thomas. And so whenever he comes up in scripture, which he does a few other times, you go, oh, that's Doubting Thomas. And we just kind of stuck this label on him. And, my, and Brett, Brett asked the question, he said, why don't we call Peter denier Peter? You remember that Peter denied Jesus three times? Why don't we stick that label on Peter and call him denying Peter? And you know, Paul persecuted the church. Why don't we call him persecuting Paul? Every time his name shows up, we go, oh, that's, that's persecuting Paul. Or take David, for example. Why don't we call David adulterous, murdering, lying, thieving, deceitful David? Because he did all of those things, yet we don't stick these labels on him like we do doubting Thomas. Because for some reason in our world, doubting is like the worst sin. 
Like we, if belief is the highest value, then doubting must be the worst sin. And so we've said, well, Thomas did the worst thing you can do and he doubted. What if that's not true? What, what if the way, it, the, way, the way we've been taught that it works, and we have, I'm gonna show you this little graphic that, that we made that, that says like, if you're a good Christian, then you believe, right? Your belief is kind of what determines how good of a Christian you are. So when your belief starts to sink, you start, doubts start to creep in, then you're moving towards being a weak Christian. And I think that's how we're taught to think. And so when doubt creeps in, we feel like we're further from God. And so if we want to get closer, we have to believe again. We got to, somehow we got to make our, we got to pull ourselves up by our intellectual bootstraps and make ourselves believe things that we're not sure we believe if we want to be a good Christian. What if that's not actually how it works? What if this is how it works? Like we, we, we're on this path to becoming Jesus-centered people. And a part of the journey of becoming a Jesus-centered person is working through doubt. That's just part of the journey. In fact, working through doubt ends up bringing us closer to the person we're created to be than if we never work through the doubt at all. And this is a fear I have, that the church has made it so unwelcoming to wrestle with doubt and ask questions and express curiosity about our faith that we have a lot of people who believe things and have no idea why. I just believe it because that's what I was told. That's, that's just, isn't that just what we believe? And I, and I have no idea why, and I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't communicate to somebody else why I believe what I believe. I just believe it. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? I think Thomas would say no. I think Thomas was stronger on the other side. And I think we gotta quit calling him Doubting Thomas because Jesus gave the disciples this command. We read about this in Acts you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the story goes on from there to really focus on Paul and how he took that message to the Greek and Roman world, to the West. Thomas went East. And as far as we can tell from historical records, Thomas ended up in India, in Southern India. And he started a community that still exists today. There's still a community of Christians in India called the Thomas Christians. Because this man who did the worst thing we can imagine and doubted that Jesus rose from the dead, went on to tell people in a completely different part of the world that Jesus Christ actually is alive. And there's stories like that all over our community of faith. You should read the story of Henry Nouwen and how Henry Nouwen wrestled with his sexuality and he wasn't really sure how that could be compatible with his faith in God. And yet he, he dug deep into that and he wrote a lot of books that, that have impacted many of us and helped us be closer to Jesus as he wrestled with this struggle. We, you can read about C.S. Lewis and how when his wife died, it shattered him. He married late in life and he was only married for about five years and his wife got sick and died. And it just broke him into pieces. And he struggled with how can this be with a good God that I believe in and I think he loves me and how, and as he worked through that, he wrote a book that is still used today to help people manage and deal with grief. Our, our sometimes, our greatest demonstrations of faith take place in seasons of doubt. So we don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to run from it. And we don't need to be afraid of it on behalf of others. And this is where I think this gets us. So I wanna to speak to you parents and grandparents. As you watch your children or grandchildren go through this deconstruction period, and, and most of the time, this is not a set rule, but most of the time it happens between 16 and 22. As you watch them go through that, how are you gonna respond? Are you gonna stick with, 
hey, no, you can't ask questions. Bible says it, you gotta believe it, that settles it. No questions here. Or are you gonna give them some space to be curious, to explore, to take some things apart and hold them up to the truth of God's word? Are you gonna guide them in that process? Are you gonna confess to them that you've had the same questions yourself because you know you have? And you're gonna walk on this journey with them. If what you want for them is a stronger faith on the other side, I encourage you, give them some space. Walk with them. Continue to point them to Scripture as the truth that we stand on. And let them wrestle. Let those roots go deeper. And then help them rebuild when the time comes to rebuild. And if you're going through this personally, I just want to encourage you to continue to take steps of faith in spite of your doubt. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? That's a paradox. But if you pray in a season of doubt, that's a step of faith. Talking to someone that you can't see in the midst of your doubt is a step of faith. Keep praying. Absolutely stay grounded in scripture. When you continue to read scripture, when you're not sure you even believe it all, that's a step of faith. Keep reading scripture. Stick with it, even in seasons of doubt. And worship. I love that Thomas's response when he's faced with the resurrected Jesus is worship my Lord and my God. That's all he wants in that moment. Continue to worship, even in your seasons of doubt, because he still deserves it whether you believe it or not. Continue to take these steps of faith. So if that's you, continue to pray, continue to read scripture, continue to worship, because these things are a part of the process and you can still do them even, even in your doubt. And if somebody that you love and care about is going through this deconstruction, give them some space, Let them wrestle and guide them along the way. Point them back to scripture, pray for them, pray with them and help them rebuild when the time comes. Our nature is to freak out. But the truth is belief and doubt can coexist in the life of a Jesus follower. We all believe that on the surface. So when the doubt comes, don't be surprised. Don't freak out. Just continue to do the things that are gonna lead to a stronger faith on the other side. I believe that we have an opportunity with a generation that is looking for reasons to walk away from the church, distrust in leadership, um, incompatibility of some spiritual beliefs with the way that they see the world. And we can either respond by saying, if you're not gonna buy all of it, you can't be a part of this. And we can let them walk away. Or we can say, you know what? This can be complicated. There are times when it's difficult and messy and we're willing to walk with you through this process of understanding who Jesus really is and how and what he really wants for your life. And one way is going to contribute to the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and the other way is gonna wind up with a small group of people who have a rigid set of beliefs and we don't know why. I know which way I wanna go. And I think you have a role in this just as much as I do. So I just wanna invite you to join me. And let's, let's, let's allow belief and doubt to coexist. Let's guide people through and let's stand on the truth of God's word together. We pray about this with me. Father, we thank you for this example of Thomas and how he, he wrestled through and worked through something that led to a stronger faith on the other side. And we ask for 
the courage and confidence in you and in your truth to do that on our own when we have doubts, but also as we help other people, people that we love and care about, wrestle through some things. Would you do this in us and through us for stronger faith on the other side and for your glory to be revealed in the lives of people who don't have it all figured out, but we know what we believe and we know why we believe it. Would you do this for us? And on the other side, God, may we represent you so well to the people around us. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we're gonna uh, close with a song about, about walking by faith and sometimes believing even in seasons of, of hard, hard times and struggle. Would you stand as we sing? I just wanna encourage you, if this is something that you're wrestling with and you wanna reach out and talk to somebody about it or there's somebody that you love that you're not sure how to create this space for them or how to help them through this, um, man, uh, this is something that we, our, our staff and leadership talk about a lot and we'd, we'd love to help you through that. So reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you and, uh, and, and guide you through this process. Let's, let's sing together.